0: Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Today, I welcome back Jess Walter, former National Book Award finalist and winner of the Edgar Allan Poe Award. Jess is the author of seven novels, two collections of short stories, and one nonfiction book. He was on the show with me in 2020 to talk about his last novel, The Cold Millions. You can find that interview in our archives. He joins me today to talk about his latest collection, The Angel of Rome, out later this month by Harper. But before I bring him on, a quick reminder that we're now offering some great perks on Patreon. We started the page to help keep in better touch with you and get your feedback, as well as offer some fun writing tips and tricks. You can see all the benefits by visiting www.patreon.com backslash writers on writing. Any level of support helps. If the show has boosted your writing in some way, if you've gotten some useful writing advice, this is an easy way to reach out, and we appreciate it all. On with the show. Jess, welcome back. Thanks,
1: Marie. Nice to be
0: here. Oh, It's so great to have you back. You know, listeners will know I am a huge fan of short stories. (laughs) And I bring short story collections on whenever I can, and I adore your novels, but I might adore your short stories even more. So I've been looking forward to this.
1: So glad to hear that. I um, I know some readers just love novels so much that uh, you know they'll ask, "What's next?" And I'll say a book of stories, and I see a few eyes sort of fall, like you know, not interested. But I'm the same as you. I love a great short story collection.
0: Yeah, I mean, they kind of seem to fall in and out of favor. They were enjoying a huge renaissance, I feel like, a couple of years ago, and it's our job to keep them going because I, yeah, I I
1: appreciate that.
0: So I had read a handful of these stories. I mean, I think maybe four of them as they were being published along the way, you know, in various journals. And I saw one on selected shorts, but it's a totally different experience to read them in a collection, you know, kind of as one body in conversation with each other. So I thought, you know, maybe we could just start there, you know, with how you assembled the collection and kind of introduce folks to the landscape of these 12 stories and what was on your mind thematically as you were putting these together.
1: Yeah, that process of putting them together is this really interesting lens on what you've been thinking and feeling and converting into prose over that time. And as happened with my last collection, We Live in Water, I began to see these themes sort of emerge. And honestly, it was a, you know, (laughs) I don't have to tell anyone else, but it's been a tough several years. And, And I realized I was writing Toward, I was writing into hard situations and looking for hopeful outcomes looking for people who affected you in certain ways who you know that and and the angel of Rome title story I think is probably the most clear example of that. But, you know, from Mr. Voice, you know, where a, a girl finds an unlikely parent through all of the stories, it was just these moments of human connection that in in difficult situations. And then, you know, I, I love humor and I love uh, the way that connects and intersects with other things. And so the, I, I think that's what how I ended up putting the collection together. And, you know, I, I had Probably forty stories I was reading through and looking for you know those things that connected. and those were the ones that really resonated with me, the ones that had an unlikely sense of hope.
0: There's also a lot of identity and kind of reinvention and you know these kind of wistful looking back, you know you you do these forward and back looking stories of yeah. uh, perspective and you know how people have changed and and I you know I think a lot of us these days at least, <laughs> at least a lot of us in this house are are doing a lot of that in, in light yeah. of where the world is, you know, what, how did we get here and where have we been? And
1: yeah. And it's true. I, I think, I thank you. And I think that is another thing that I felt was, This sense of self definition, which has changed so much in, um, you know, through the internet, social media eras. And we all, I I used to think that our Facebook pages were sort of like um, if a 1950s publicist took over our lives, you know, we're only showing great photos. There's not going to be any bad times. It's only, you know. um, And then some people use it as a way to connect when they are, when they lose a parent or something like that. And then watching the way self adaptation. Identity changes through all of these other social media, had me thinking about just self identity itself, and, and so many, so many of the characters are at that moment of defining and presenting themselves to the world, and you know, and when you go through a pandemic and you're alone, that becomes kind of your outlet to the world too. So, yeah, I, I think so many of those things were on my mind and, and then bubble their ways, their way into the stories. I I sometimes feel like when I'm putting a story collection together, it has a little bit of a yard sale quality or, you know, (laughs) like I'm, I'm looking through and saying, well, what have I got to put out in the yard? And it's, uh, I've got this settee and, uh, you know, here's an old uh, credenza and it's nicer when you conform it into a room, you know, when you say these pieces fit together, this, uh, this couch goes with um, you know with this end table and uh and and so that that's kind of for me the the magic of putting a story collection together i've also likened it to you know putting an album together where do, where does each song go but you know having mr voice opens with opens with the word mother and ends with the word father and the very last story in the collection ends with the line you've got to give them hope and you know i i th- i think I was thinking a lot about my children as I wrote this and the world that, that uh, they have in front of them. And, and so I think, you know, I almost chose the stories in a way that I would want my kids to read them.
0: I had a lot of those same impressions and uh, and you can get to some of those. It also really struck me as sort of a quintessential Gen X collection. You know, I don't know how you feel (laughs) about generational labels, but to me, who's in my fifties, It just felt very much like this Gen X collection. I mean, most of these characters were born in mid-60s to early 70s. And the stories are set in the 70s, 80s, or 90s, but those are the ages they are at those stages. And I kind of feel like we're an unrepresented generation or underrepresented generation, I should say.
1: Yeah, It's funny because I don't know that I've ever identified generationally that way, but I, I certainly have all the markings. And I think it's because... You know, I was a young father at nineteen, who has lived in my hometown my whole life. I have, I mean, I I I don't even think the greatest generation. I mean, I think I go back to like nineteen oh four or something. <laughs> <laughs> and and yet, I mean, so the so the markers are maybe you know. And I had so many friends who made money in the tech boom of you know the the, the in the nineties, and of course, I didn't. And so um, when I think about generational connection, it becomes more, you know, cultural, I suppose. And, and I certainly see those markers in my, in my kids, but the thing I can't escape is that, you know, that temporal tyrant time. It just, I was born in 1965. I was born on the day of the moon landing. <laughs> and So <laughs> those, you know, a- autobiography is a, is a sneaky bugger. It finds its way in. So I, I do think it is, of, of that time and era, um, I think I've always had Gen V. I always wanted, you know, I wanted to be in the summer of love and I wanted to be in Paris in the 20s. And I, I think I've always felt outside where the action is happening. And that might be the most, the most telling quality of a Gen X person of all is this sense that we were sort of the filler in between, you know, in between the action.
0: Well, and that's, that's, I think really what I'm picking up on in a lot of these stories. That's how it feels this insider outsider quality and this, you know, striving to get somewhere else. You know, and,
1: and and again, I think it's the fictional characters I'm drawn to, you know, I, I find myself not drawn, but even when I write historical fiction, it's the people kind of on the sidelines of the parade as, as I wrote about in the cold millions I'm just drawn to the lives that most of us lead, you know, i I could never write a novel about Joan of Arc. I would write a novel about Joan of Arc's neighbor you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> And to me, that's just so much more interesting.
0: and I love to talk. I mean, the humor in here is I, I hate using the expression laugh out loud, but it really really was laugh out loud, funny. and and I've heard you talk about kind of the trick of having to cut things that, just are there to make you laugh, you know, cutting some of your darlings that are that are really just there for comic relief versus humor that really serves the story and is advancing the plot in a different way. And I, I kind of wondered if we could unpack that a little bit and how you know, and how, yeah. you, how you navigate it.
1: Well, I certainly don't always know, and I never want a story to to be less funny. I guess the question I ask myself is, is this humor deepening the story? Is it making the characters, is it leading us towards some pathos or some deeper understanding of what these characters are going through? The first story in the collection is called Mr. Voice, and it was really this this voice I heard as a kid um, that was on the radio all the time, you know, announcing everything. And it was, you know, it's the sort of voice that is um, that we hear, you know, in movie trailers, you know, and, and in Spokane, it was, you know, this weekend at Spokane Raceway Park, we've got the Kittleson's Killer CUDA, And we're going to turn the Spokane arena into a giant mud pit. <laughs> and I just thought, what would it be like to grow up with that voice? And then that became someone's stepfather. And, if that's it, if it's just a London Royals ready, um, you know, then the story would be funny, I guess, but it wouldn't go anywhere or do anything. And so often the situation in my mind starts out as comic or humorous. You know, what if a Latin student is mistaken for an Italian translator? And that, oh, if, that's, if I don't get past that first step on the staircase, then it doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, and so th- those stories where I end up, or if i just if it only stays funny if if everything in the story is about that unlikely voice in your house or you know if if it's just one mistake, one translation mistake after another i I kind of know it's not really going anywhere, but what usually happens is I end up with the other reaction. Uh, It's too bad laugh out loud has become a cliche because it really is the most wonderful experience when you're reading. But the other wonderful experience is when you feel yourself tearing up and you get a lump in your throat and you feel the fullness of regret and sorrow and love and all those other things. And it's usually the, for me, the laughter kind of gives way to those other things and maybe the laughter comes back in or it's a kind of poignant laughter, but yeah, I, I think I know I've found a real story when I could take whatever original joke idea I had out and the story wouldn't lose its power, you know? Mm,
0: mm-hmm. Well, that raises a good point about the difference between sentiment and sentimentality, and you're right, there were equal numbers of times that you would kind of, you know, choke up over these stories, and you never delved into, and it's so easy to, for writers to delve into sentimentality, and, Oof, you know, yeah. ugh, <laughs> yeah, exactly, and I, ugh. And
1: I... And and I think it's, that's a moving line. It moves in every story. And we talk about earned emotion or earned sentiment. And I think when I was young, I was terrified of sentimentality. And so I wrote a darker aspect than I probably feel as a human being. And um, so trying to find my way through these stories and humor is a great leavening agent and a great way to to bring in, you know, to deal with darkness and to deal with some difficult subjects and to deal with big emotions. And so uh, I think as I've gotten older as a writer, I've trusted my own feelings and my sentiments more. And rather than try to avoid them, I tell you, if, if you're approaching heavy emotion, that is a time to be as precise with your language and to never fall into cliche. You know, there, there are times when you can get away with a worn phrase, but when it's at the peak of an emotional moment, in the story, that's not it. And, and so some things like that, that I, I really, tr- you know, that I really try to focus on as I, as I find, you know, the emotion, you welling up like that.
0: Can I ask about a story that I have absolutely loved? And I think I know the answer of why it didn't make into the collection and listeners can find it so easily. And I've read it probably 20 times. Whenever I get depressed, I pull it out. It's called Cheston. And it's available (laughs) free online at like Willow Springs. If you just Google your name and Cheston, it'll, it'll pop right up. And I was wondering if that was an example for you, because you said as, as you were looking over these 40, 50 stories, the ones that were the easiest to lose were the ones that, you know, were just there for comic value to make you laugh. And, and this story just makes me laugh like no other. Maybe it's the old philosophy major in me, but... Um. I
1: I love that story too. And it's funny, uh, when I finished that story, I thought, New Yorker, here I come. Uh, Stockholm, you know, the... Uh, uh, I'm sure I'll get the Nobel Prize for the story. And editors roundly hated that story. Oh, really? Oh. <laughs> uh, my agent hated that story. My I've had two book editors hate that story. Gosh. Uh, I think... It's, it's my favorite story to read aloud, and it's a little bit of a performance piece, but I think within a collection, it's uh, it, it's this strange bitter taste within the rest of the collection, I think. And, you know, uh, I sort of pulled the people around me, wife, editor, agent, and none of them thought it belonged in the collection. And, uh, but I, I was sort of okay with that because it is in the end, just an extended riff you know it really is one joke after another and it sort of dissolves on your tongue it disappears it doesn't it doesn't have a ton of weight and I sort of love that about it and I agree it's great it's a nice little philosophical note I also have a bunch of other sort of experimental strange oddball stories and I thought maybe that goes in a collection later because I'm with you I love that story but Uh, I, I also am pretty good at listening to the voices around me. And when I read it through, it was in, it was a version of the collection where I had three more stories. And one of the stories I cut because it was very similar to other stories I had in there. You know, sometimes you're, you find yourself working in this vein and you write two or three stories in it. And I just thought, you know, of these four stories are all the same. I can maybe have two of them, but two have to go. And then, And then Cheston was one of those stories that I thought felt a little out of place and like a joke that, you know, that was merely there to make uh, me and apparently you laugh.
0: Well, I totally take your point of why it didn't make the cut. I was just thinking of it in terms of, um, I mean, I I hate to bring this up, but in terms of last week and or, you know, everything that we're enduring. And and it it just strikes me that it works on a couple of different notes. It is. So it's a story about a nihilist baby. Yeah, <laughs> it, well, it he's actually very funny.
1: He's, he's actually four, but his mom still calls. That's him true, right? Okay, yeah. so a nihilist uh, <laughs>
0: post toddler. Yes, and and yeah, I mean, it just speaks to this upcoming generation and and yeah. Um, yeah. what they're going through. So I thought it worked on a couple of different levels beyond beyond humor. uh it, It's so poignant to me, but but i I take your point I mean, trust your editors
1: <laughs> well i I don't know I mean uh, it's funny having you say that because that was that's always been one of the hardest one of the hardest things for me to do is if I really believe in something and so what what happened when every I still clung to it actually it was still in until that last round of editing when I wanted to sharpen and tighten it, and then it was reading it with the other stories that you know allowed me to think gosh maybe they're right but that that balance between your own instincts and your readers and you know what the world says. I think I was able to take it out because I thought it'll live somewhere else. And you know, I'll I'll certainly read it again <laughs> at some point. But I could see it going in a collection where it fit more with a whole with other oddball stories and other kind of philosophical. You know, almost thought experiment stories. You know, but the the moment where um, Chest and the nihilist baby uh, swirls a Batman cup filled with his father's stolen scotch, and his father's own re- reaction is, "Who puts uh, who puts eighteen year old scotch on the rocks?" Oh um, <laughs> yeah, it's still still one of my favorite fictional moments. <laughs>
0: mine too if your game for it one thing one game i like to play with short story writers is to uh and you can say no and we'll just cut this out is to take a couple of these and i have a couple in mind or you could you could choose them and just dissect them and so Mm -hmm. you know we would would take one and and we would find out where it started Kind of go through the revision process of it. Talk about some elegant choices you made in it. Talk about titling it. Talk about beginning it and ending it. All that kind of stuff.
1: Nothing sounds more fun to me. That <laughs> the uh, so many book interviews are, you know, just uh, uh, who's going to who's going to be in the movie or something. So, so um, <laughs> to get to talk at that level about one of the stories would be great.
0: Do you have one you want to do? I mean, I think, no, no, you uh, pick. I've, uh, I mean, I think Angel of Rome would make sense for a bunch of reasons because there's so yeah. much to dig into. But the you know the last story would make sense too. We could do both of them if we have time. But, yeah,
1: uh, Angel of Rome is an interesting one because it's I've never worked like that before. The uh, actor Eduardo Bellerini had had, who's just a terrific book narrator, actor and a writer too. We he and I were talking about how it seems like audiobooks are kind of an afterthought and they had been for me too until he read beautiful ruins and he just he brought another life to it and i said be fun i think it was actually his idea it would be fun to you know work on something together so we just sort of talked about our favorite neighborhood in, in italy trastevere in rome and eduardo had been a student there before he became an actor he had actually studied latin and so i kind of interviewed him like i would have when i was a journalist and just took notes and um and then i went and started writing this story and eduardo is the son of a famous italian poet and you know it was very sophisticated nothing like any character like i could even start to uh, create so i I created a character, um, Nebraska Jack Rigel, who I put in a city very much like the one I grew up in and sent him to Rome and I wrote about half the story and sent it to Eduardo. And he had a few suggestions and notes, you know, that mainly on how, how he would want to read the, those characters. And then I flew to New York during the pandemic and he and I table read it and if you ever get a chance as a writer to, even if you have friends who are in the theater, to have them read your story out loud, it was one of the most thrilling experiences. I just sat there taking notes on my own prose and he would say something and we would say, oh, wouldn't it be better if it was like this? Mm. And it was so fun as the collaboration. And Eduardo has great Instinct, So he would suggest a great word here or there, a great phrase, or, you know, we, we had so much fun that way. And then I, I probably wrote three or four more drafts and sent them to him. And then he did one more reading. And that last reading you know, we, we made a few final tweaks. So it was probably the most collaborative and produced story I've ever done. Mm -hmm. Um, then when I went to put it in the book, I went back and made a few more changes, you know, because the audio version that we did had certain qualities that I felt worked, you know, and this section here, take that out. So it it was so fun. And, and the story itself, you know, has a, it's, it's the longest story, it's practically a novella. And, and it reinforced something I came to believe with Beautiful Ruins, that the amount of time it takes to work on a story, because this one took six months probably, is reflected in how well you get to know the characters and how deeply you imagine them and their lives. And, and even the ability then, as I do with this story, to telescope out in time and pick up their lives later. And that, to me, gave the story a kind of emotional depth that I don't think it would have had if it did what short stories often do, which is illustrate just one moment, one period of time. Instead, I I wanted to do that full Alice Monroe thing where I give you the full sweep of of the relationships and lives of these people.
0: Right. I mean, it really felt like it was verging on turning into a book, And, and I wondered how you exercised the amount of restraint you had to exercise <laughs> to keep it <laughs> contained in a short story because it really could have easily spun out I think into a novel
1: well okay. you know it's funny because I in some ways I feel like I already wrote that novel um, mm. you know this is about it's about the story is about a young man who goes to Italy um, who's a movie buff like i was i grew up next to a drive-in movie theater so my my being a movie buff comes from sitting in a tree fort and watching this postage size uh postage stamp size uh screen um as a kid but for jack it was you know he's the kind of movie buff who who developed a crush on this italian actress and now he's in rome and he actually sees her and he also bumps into this TV actor, um, Ronnie Tower. And I'd actually written a short story about Ronnie Tower before and written about some people who watched uh, his show Tower and Bridges in another short story. And I always loved the description of this show. Again, it's a very Gen X thing to have, you know, on Thursday nights watched Simon and Simon or Magnum PI or, you know, those kinds of shows. And so it was that kind of detective TV show that, Ronnie Tower was on and so uh, you have these three characters um the Angel of Rome um Angelina uh, Amadio and uh and Ronnie Tower this American tv actor and Jack Riegel and just you know getting those three act those three characters together took the patience of doing that was so fun and then letting it spin out into this story I when I finished it it felt complete and it felt like it it does feel like a novel. I do think it's a novella at the heart of the center of this. And it's as close as I'll ever come to writing another, a sequel to Beautiful Ruins. You know, this, uh, it's it's much of the same world and emotions. And it was, yeah, it was pretty great to, you know, to inhabit that world again, but not, to try to repeat what I'd done, to do something totally new. I'd never written what I think of as a novella before, except maybe the last story in this collection too, is is close on on that level. So, so for me, if I'm giving myself a writing challenge, I always know I'm headed in the right direction, and you know, doing something I hadn't done. Whereas, I feel if I if I'd taken this out to full length, it would have just felt like, oh, he's you know he's trying to write another book like Beautiful Ruins. And uh, I like the way it sits in this collection and, and lends some of its depth and, and thematics to some of the other stories.
0: And it's just chock full of more humor. I mean, he kind of gets oh. himself into these wacky
1: the, there's a scene where he is where he he you know he Ronnie, he becomes Ronnie Tower's um translator because when he tells Ronnie he's studying uh, Latin in Rome, Ronnie either thinks they speak Latin in Rome or hears Italian. And so, you know, he in in his attempts, he, he assumes that he's helping Ronnie Tower woo uh, his Italian co-star, but And he has, and all he has is this Italian guidebook that I, I actually have this Italian guidebook from the first time I went to Italy in 1997. And so um, I just, it was so fun to just open that Italian phrase book and, you know, he's, he's asking out Angelina for Ronnie and, you know, saying we could go to the discotheque. We could go for a drive, you know, all, all, all of the phrases that are in there, putting those, in English, representing them as him, you know, speaking them in his um, tortured guidebook, Italian. It was so fun. It was so fun to write, so fun to hear Eduardo read. And it's alarming how rarely we have any fun when we're writing. Uh, and, and I always think it's probably a good sign when I am laughing. Yeah. Or, or having fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, when having I'm having yeah. fun, when I'm thinking, right. you know what uh, this, cause it, so much of writing is rewriting and questioning yourself and, you know, and trying to figure out what happens next. It can feel sort of torturous, but I, I really think that to think like a musician, to think that you're playing, even when it's hard, you know, play can be hard to, I think that I, I, I think that's one of the keys to wanting to write is to is to view it like a musician. No musician ever says I'm going to work. They say I'm going to play. And if writers could ha- could embody that mentality more, um, and working on that working on a story with an actor felt like play. It was it was you know that collaboration. That um, uh, you know hearing your work that way. It was so rewarding.
0: Well, as you're talking about that, I'm thinking of David Sedaris, who also talks about, you know, he'll perform his material in front of an audience. And while he's performing it, he's taking notes. You know, it's already theoretically as polished as it's going to get. And he's still rewriting as he's performing it. And so I'm thinking, what a benefit to, you know, hear this out of somebody else's mouth, an experienced person's mouth, and then be able to edit it from that.
1: Oh, readers are reading the story aloud to themselves. There, it, it still has that musical quality, and so I, I read my work aloud anyway. But I can fall into that, you know, professorial drone. And so sometimes it's great to have somebody outside of you and an actor, you know, whose job it is to bring life to those characters. Is if you know an actor as a fiction writer, find them and and uh, have them even your dialogue, even you just have them read your dialogue is so helpful.
0: We'll be back with more from Jess Walter and the Angel of Rome in just a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you're liking the show, if you've learned anything along the way in our over 24 years of broadcasting from the thousands of episodes we've brought you, you can reach back out to us. It is www.patreon.com backslash writers on writing. By becoming a backer for just a few bucks a month or so, you will get weekly writing tips and prompts and some other goodies. Again, visit patreon.com backslash writers on writing. Let's get back to it then with Jess Walter talking about the Angel of Rome. Tell me a little bit about finding your way into that story because you had to have you know he's not just in Rome he has a little bit of a backstory and you had to get that in there.
1: It was these conversations that Eduardo and I had. He described staring into a window at one point in in Rome and you know and and I had bought a leather coat in Rome and, and we both so we both had leather coats so there were all of these sort of touchstones, and and I want I knew I needed to give I needed to give Jack that sense we have when we're in a foreign country and we are so incredibly alone. So it, it took a lot more patience than I often have with with my own short stories, because you know. And so I decided I would write it in chapters, and that you know those chapters would lead you know inexorably to that moment when when he sees a you know he's so. Jack is walking through the city, desperate about to about to leave and he staggers down this alley and turns the corner and there's kind of a crowd and he walks by the crowd and there, in the window, he sees this actress that he's loved forever, and he walks up and just puts his hand on the window and i won 't give away the surprise, but you know I, I, I knew I was writing to that point, and that's often how i 'll envision writing this if I can just get if I can just get. You know, everyone in the same room, if I can just get the kid off to college, if I can just get, you know, and, and then sometimes you go back and tighten. With this, I I loved the sort of pace of it. I loved the slow rolling out of Jack Reigel's situation his life back in Nebraska, um, you know, he had come to Rome for this girl and you think, Oh, the girl is going to be, you know, the, the plot point, but no, his realization that he didn't even care about that girl. He just cared what the people in his high school thought of him. And what's he doing in Rome is people, these people can't even see him. You know, his, his whole reason for being here is this kind of fantasy. And I'll often write to what I think of as the kind of distillation of the thematics of the story. And that I, I uh, let me find that sentence because it, it was what the beginning of that story meant to me. It was, the it was what the beginning of that story was writing toward was um, again, the thing we talked about this sense of yourself here it is. So in this moment, Jack is going to leave Rome, going to stop studying, giving up on, on this sort of fantasy of new Jack Rigel He was going to go to Italy and re- reinvent himself. And he says, this, this, he thinks, this is the problem with living in fantasies. We so often fail to account for ourselves being in them. And, <laughs> uh, and when, when I reach a moment like that, I just kind of sigh and think like, I didn't know that when I started the story, but that feels so true to my own. You know, I, I, I have all these, pictures of myself first time I went to Europe I I wore a cable knit sweater because I thought that's what you wear in Europe and this was before selfies and so I have a little disposable camera and I would ask strangers and there are just all these pictures of me sitting in in piazzas (laughs) um, (laughs) with a a cup of coffee because I just wanted I wanted that vision of myself as I had seen myself in some other place and and Jack you know it 21 is having that moment of realization that, you know, that the problem with all of our fantasies, you're in the limo, but you're still not a movie star. It's you in a limo, you know? And, um, and so that writing to that moment kind of gives you this connection with the character. I've felt that. And now you're writing a character who's not someone from Nebraska, but someone that you embody, you know, so completely. And, you know, three or four of those moments coming along, Are kind of what makes the story work.
0: And so much of class. I mean, I know you love writing about classes in there. And um, yeah,
1: I don't even think I have a choice except to write about class. Like I said, when Eduardo was telling me about his childhood, you know, it's like, well, I lived in New York, but you know, I went here and I've been abroad this many times. And I just thought I don't see an access point into a character like that. And it was never in a collaboration like this. um, You know, it was I, it was clear i'm the writer and and eduardo's going to read it you know he's uh, he's the actor performing it but even within that yeah class is something you know growing up i i was told that the great book about class in america was the great gatsby and i just thought that was a book about rich people you <laughs> know i didn't i didn't see anyone that came from the world i came from and so it's important to me to represent that world and And I don't know, you know, and I, and those are the stories I'm interested
0: in. Me too. Well, I want to pull out like, so Ronnie Tower, who's, who's very different than the guy in famous actor, but these characters who could fall into cliche or stereotype, like we feel like, I don't know any actors, but I feel like through you, I kind of know some actors. They could be that, and they never are. And, and I feel like you have a couple of ways that you avoid doing that. And one is either leaning into the stereotype with humor or flipping the stereotype on its head. And th- an example of that, I think, would be the uh, the story's title just left, across the woods. You know, mm, that we, we yeah. start off with this stereotypical guy who's turns out not to be. And I was wondering if you could talk any th- about that a little bit.
1: It's interesting. I think because I grew up next to a drive-in, I've just always been fascinated by Hollywood. And I've, you know, had... Um, Sort of a typical writer's experience there where made a little bit of money, but for the most part, it's just baffling. (laughs) But I almost called the, t- the collection famous actors because I don't think that they're different than us. I think they are us. I think everyone is doing what Ronnie tower is doing. Everyone is doing what Angelina is doing. Everyone is doing what, you know, the unnamed famous actor, terrific Todd um, of the terrific Todd Chronicles or whatever his show is, though uh, is doing in, in famous actor. We are all, acting for the world. We are all presenting this version of ourselves and some of us are paid for it. You know, the rest of us suckers do it for free. (laughs) And, uh, and, the way that an actor can be a sort of vehicle for different characters and people is also a little bit about being a writer too. There's a story in here about a writer who overhears some people's conversation and um, it becomes a sort of meta story about, about writing and about being the creator in a way of, of people's lives once you write those stories. And so I, I find a real connection with those kinds of characters, and I think it's really valuable to start with what you assume about those people and we assume so much about people we have no idea about people think they know Amber Heard and Johnny Depp you know you don't know them um, you know you've seen their trial um and so to give those characters added depth when you think, you know, them, you know, it's amazing to me to hear people have conversations about movie stars as if they're, somebody they know or went to school with, or, you know, we all have an opinion on whether or not John Mulaney should have left his wife or whatever, you know, it, it, it's always kind of wild to me. And so to take those assumptions and then, you know, kind of heighten them and then invert them. And so, yeah, Ronnie Tower is every bit the crass um, actor you think he should be, except how his connection with Jack, his desire to take care of this kid. And it opens him and deepens him the way, you know, any relationship does with any of us. And, and, you know, Jack's understanding of who this character is, you know, changes, but he also has an effect on that person. And, and that person has an effect on him. And, and so I, I, I don't think the secret is any different than almost any other character, you know, um, starting with those assumptions. And then, you know, there, there, there's a moment in The Angel of Rome where Ronnie Tower is telling him how he got his job after Vietnam. And all of a sudden, you see a depth to this character. And then, you know, he grabs a soccer ball and kicks it miles off and tells these kids that he was a punter in college. And just the depth of someone's being before they became famous to me, you know, was so interesting. And so the the great humor of imagining this this Ronnie Tower like character who speaks no Italian but has his agent has gotten him a job in this movie. And then opening that character up and finding how sweet he is to Jack was to me this the key to kind of getting away from you know any archetypal things that might drag him down.
0: And in famous actor you did. I think you did it a lot with humor. He would say something about, you know, how can you imagine finding yourself here on a Friday night? This isn't <laughs> yeah. how it would go. And she's like, "It's my Wednesday." I mean, she would yeah. always just disarm whatever he threw at her as his kind of cliché. "Aren't you lucky to be sleeping with me tonight?" And and she, and that, and, she could deflect it. It was great. And that
1: was a fun story. And again, it came strictly out of so I I was in uh, I was in Bend, Oregon, doing a reading and. So I walked by a party, and I saw these people standing on the front porch and at the time Bend was being you know one of those cities that everyone was talking about, how hot Bend is <laughs> right. and um, and the whole story just sort of started unraveling in my mind, and I started thinking how funny it would be to have a one night stand that was in fact the most unlikely film criticism ever, bouncing back and forth to her critiquing his career. And the key to that story is she is so much more interesting than him. And she sees through, you know, he's doing all of his kind of movie star tricks and trying so hard to be one of us you know, he wants so badly to be normal, to be, and that he actually doesn't want to be normal. He wants to be perceived as normal and perceived as just like the people around him. Sure. I'm rich and famous. And, you know, a woman at a party will go home with me, but I'm just like you, you know, and as he walks around her apartment talking about all the things, uh, she's just like, I hope he stops that, you know, and, (laughs) and, you know, that, and, and then the, and then the two of them have you know, have this kind of awkward sex. And, and uh, again, you know, I'm writing this whole story to entertain myself and to write the line in there that having sex with like, uh, with a stranger is like trying to find a spoon in someone's kitchen, you know, someone else's kitchen. It's just like, oh, that's so much fun. And yet there's something else going on here. This girl is, this woman is withholding who she is to this person who has been who's been famous and an actor so long that he doesn't even know who he is you know and that the the play of those two characters identity was so marvelous and then the end of the story is something that actually happened to me. I was an extra in a movie, and a somewhat famous actor stole all of the prescri- prescription drugs out of my, uh, oh my out God. of my <laughs> medicine cabinet. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and I always carried that around. You know those things you carry around, thinking that would make a great story. That would make a great story.
0: Yes. When
1: I, when I saw that party, I thought. I have the beginning to the end of that thing I've carried around forever. And it's not, you know, I was like trying to suck up to this actor. Oh, we'll be friends. And when I say he's famous, he's actually not. He was just on like a kind of, he was on a TV show and was like medium famous, I guess. And he wasn't at the time. He was an up and coming actor, but later he became famous. And so I just always thought, boy, I, I want to do something with you're trying to, impress this person and they end up stealing your your uh, all of your prescription meds because they have such a terrible drug problem. And um so I had just filed that away and then when I saw that party and imagined this actor going home with this young woman, I thought, "Oh no, it's not her trying to impress him, it's him trying to impress her." And you know, like you always do with critics. And so again, it became this really interesting story about being a writer and about criticism and how your work is read and you know how how needy and desperate artists can be and it, it was such fun terrain to end up in and the idea of that humorous setup um leading to more than just a joke but the jokes are still there the humor you know the uh the spoon in a kitchen is still in that story but it's this more disturbing and more hopefully interesting story about identity and performative identity.
0: It's a good reminder to just keep turning a story. And I guess you've talked about the first key to that is to switch perspectives away from maybe the perspective that most people might assume a story would be told in and then just keep shifting it, you know, turning it around like a (laughs) room to to get to something else.
1: Well, and I I think it leads you to know those other characters. You can always switch the perspective back but it's shocking to me how many of my stories come from that perspective shift. Um, Friends friend has cancer where there's a writer sitting overhearing conversations. Like I often do as a writer, you know, is that specifically, it's like, Oh, what if I'm the people who this writer is, you know, is overhearing. And, and that, that, that to me is, you know, it leads you directly into that kind of empathetic thing that, that, you know, that we try to do with fiction, it just it puts you inside those heads, which is the place to be.
0: So in that story, France Friend Has Cancer, when you started that story, and it starts in dialogue, and it's a lot of dialogue, and we think it's about one thing, and it turns out to be about something completely different. And at what point did you know it was about something completely different? You'd already written all of that. dialogue, And then you're like, wait,
1: you know, it's funny, because I did not hear any of that actual dialogue. But I do go and I, I don't do it as much anymore, but I was in New York thinking about how often I would just sit and write down what people said and just look for, for, um, conversational patterns. And I started thinking about how we can have four conversations at once with someone we know really well, you know, we can be talking about, the play we're going to see the meal, we're going to have the fact that you're going to see your son. And, and, you know, the fact that I'm that a friend's friend has cancer, you know, Uh, we can carry on those four conversations dipping in and out of them. So at first it was just I want to represent that conversation, and the dialogue was so fun to write and this This couple came alive and Then it was that question, Okay, what now? Where does this go now and It was a really jarring moment to have one of the two people in the middle of this conversation look over and see you know a version of me writing down the dialogue and then it was yeah, it was this kind of metafictional um, experimental moment where I, where all of a sudden your seatbelt's off and, you know, you're, you're not in the car, you're standing on top of it. You're it's, and, and that's a great place to put yourself as a writer and to think what, what could happen? Not what happens ruled by the laws of physics, but what could happen? And the idea that you know the the first thing that happens is that he's writing their lives down. But then the, the person who's grabbed the notebook away from the writer realizes, wait, some of these things are things I thought. How did I? How does he know what I thought? And then he thinks, what if he writes it and then I think it? What if, you know? And and again, one of those those moments of um, of kind of defining what the story is uh, a line that. Synthesizes what, where the story, what the story is, and where it's going. The man thinks, "What if you finally meet your creator, and he's, you know, an idiot from a thirty-year-old idiot from a creative writing class?" I loved how it made me think about all the stories in the collection. That it reminds you that someone wrote them and created them and has a purpose for them. And, um, but also that that person is that creator is fallible. You know, it's they are the the inventions of a, of a writer. I, I I loved that little dash of humility that kind of arose out of it. And, and then I loved where it ended in the end, this, Mm -hmm. this character telling the writer, you know, to get old is you don't have it here. You know, you might think you have it, but it's not these collections of words. It's this gutting thing that, that will take away the person you love the most forever, you know, and it just, that 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 again that's just one of those moments of surprise for the writer that you want to share then with the reader.
0: Well, and another, you know, real pleasurable thing about this collection is you dip into these moments of of true aging, of elderly aging, and they're spread out throughout the book. This is one town and country is another yeah. and at the corner in the, to, por- the corner, yeah. to the corner. Yeah. And so you get these pleasurable experiences as a reader where you're like, ah, yes, we're returning to that theme in a different, you know, the, the globe is turned and we're looking at it from a different way, but, but these men aging um, was another real theme of the book and and um, yeah. the way they were spaced was nice.
1: I think I've always felt, um, you know you know how easily we can access our teenage self or our child self. Sometimes we can, but as writers, we, you know, we might write a Biltig's Roman or a coming of age story or whatever. But I think we have just as much access to our old selves. I really do. And I've been, you know, caring for aging and dying parents. Um, My mom died um, when she was only 53. My dad has Alzheimer's. Um, I cared for the aunt who raised my mother, who also had dementia. And so I've, I have been kind of seeing the world through their eyes for so long that It's not hard for me to imagine myself in those situations. And um, so, you know, Town & Country was uh, probably, even though the character is nothing like me, finding a a nursing home that would let my hard living dad smoke and drink caused me to imagine this place called the Town & Country that's like an old 60s motor hotel. And uh, where, you know, the prices are, are still $2 and, uh, for a cocktail. And, uh, and, they, and they treat the old people with, you know, the sort of dignity that they would have wanted. You know, they let them drink and smoke. <laughs> and uh, and that, that's really the place I wanted to find for my dad. And since it didn't exist, I had to invent it in fiction. And but that, you know, from that story to one like town and country where I you know, that Leonard character feels so much more lived in for me. You know, I'm not writing about the son taking care of this older character. It really is a kind of view I can imagine.
0: And then the son having to come out again and again and again to his yeah. dad because his dad can't remember. Yeah. It's just so, it's it's brilliant.
1: Yeah. I, again, you're just thinking, okay, I know the, poignant, the poignancy of t- telling my dad over and over that he's in his own house. In a book about character's identity, what would be the most... You know, exaggerated comic, heartbreaking corollary of that, or or parallel to that, and you know, like every family, if you have people who are gay in your family, you've you know coming out stories. So I just imagined having to come out to my senile, senile father over and over and over, um, and it you know it it and as often happens, that becomes part of the story. But in the in my original vision of it, I thought it would you know, that would just be this recurring joke. And, um, and instead, you know, it's great how that when you get to know the characters, they'll take you in other directions. And it, it's a part of the story. But I was surprised at the end, how little, you know, that what felt like this big tent pole of the story, how little of the story, it's actually holding out.
0: The last, last point, I want to make sure we get in here, is you, you don't do a lot of Poli- overtly political writing, and there's not much of it in here. But but you do allude, you know, the last story is really about climate change. And then there's this great story that uh, people can watch on selected shorts Magnificent Desolation that I, I forget the name of the actor who reads it, but I love him and he's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> and, um,
1: Bobby Cannavale. Yeah, There you go.
0: Yeah. So great. Yeah. But a little bit of commentary on our current national decision to uh, deny science and to uh, avoid climate change. And I was wondering you're thinking about bringing political subjects into your short stories and how you manage it and how you think about it. And, you know, if, if you feel kind of a responsibility as a writer to to have some of these conversations or if they just kind of seep in organically because they're on your brain? You
1: know, I, I guess I would say I refuse to acknowledge that science is somehow politics and I refuse to live in a world, you know, if I lived in the 12th century, um, I'd probably just walk straight to the pyre and tell him to set me on fire. Cause I'm not going <laughs> to pretend that, that the world is flat and that, um, you know, that, you know saints have powers or anything like that i i and so if those stories are overtly political it's not because i'm a political writer it's because the the country has lost its freaking mind you know the fact that we are we have to that, that we have to argue whether or not climate change is real or you know it might be a good idea to take a, a vaccine during a pandemic the fact that these become political issues is um, to me, kind of heartbreaking. I would like politicians to argue about policy and to, you know, as the science teacher feels in magnificent desolation, um, let's just establish that the sky is blue. Let's start there. All right, are we there? Okay, now let's establish that the grass is green. Let's just go one scientific process at a time. All right, we want to back up and talk about what color means, we'll do that. But, and and so, you know, I think the, both of those stories came out of a sort of desperation that, you know, that I feel about certain issues. And if they are political, then I will gladly take that on. You know, if uh, if limiting guns is, is overtly political, fine. But these seem to me like such basic common sense policies that, you know, to ignore the fact that our that our daily lives are influenced by I and mean, especially the lives of our kids you know I writing um the last story in the in the collection the way the world ends I had been asked to contribute to some post-apocalyptic writing and I thought how fun will it be to pretend I'm writing a story called the way the world ends and have it be like you know uh an actual, you know, this is the end of the world, and have it just be about two climate scientists applying for the same job, uh, you know, angry over you know, over the fact that their world's being ignored, uh, and and that again felt like, oh, what a great a great way to start a story. You know, there's nothing in that story that is at all controversial to 98% of scientists, you know? And so it does kind of, you know, because they are, that's the world they live in. It it does kind of beat you about the shoulders with, you know, some of the bad news about, about climate, but the fact that we, you know, that we live so blithely and ignore it is something worth writing fiction about. You know, you, you, you have to, I, I love how Albert Camus said that you must write the wager of you must write about the wager of your generation. the wager of his generation was World War II. and he wrote these incredible essays and cre- you know about creating dangerously and you know putting your life on the line for what you believe in and I think as writers, we have a lot of different jobs, and one of them is if something isn't totally out of whack in the time you're living, um, you 're living you can 't ignore it and And our aversion to science and reality to me is so out of whack. And the fact that it's become politicized in a way that, you know, Republicans could make, you know, could turn Anthony Fauci into a money-making email is stunning to me. Not that I want, you know, to make him some kind of hero. He's just a scientist, you know, what, how is the, how is this, React this um, overreaction to bad news—the scientist's fault, you know. So anyway, that that, but but typically, I wouldn't, you know, write about the evils of one party or the other, or you know, try to convince people of a certain thing. To me, this was just these characters and what it would feel like, you know, to be as they are the scientist in a monster movie telling us, you know, the comet is coming right for earth and having everyone just ignore them. You know, that film that came out, the Adam McKay film, took that to its, to its extreme, you know, and with it, as often happens with short fiction, with all fiction, I'm much more interested in the characters. And, and I really did want to ask myself that question that I wanted to pass on to my children. Where do I look for hope? And one place I look for hope is in the fact that when Barack Obama ran for president, he had to pretend that he was against gay marriage mm-hmm. to build enough of a coalition to get elected president. Now it's not even an issue. You know, even Republicans don't have a problem with it. We can change in short amounts of time. And we can, you know, resume believing in science and, and not, you know, telling science teachers you know, to stay away from our children, you know, Uh, so that desire to find a place where progress is possible, where, you know, we can believe things can change, led me to try and write a story about those worlds kind of colliding, you know, these um, climate scientists meeting a kid who's just come out, who is trying to decide if he's going to march in his first ever Gay Pride Parade. And the last part of the story, I was doing a visiting writer gig at Mississippi State University, and they had their first ever Pride Parade in Starkville, Mississippi, The uh, which was rejected by the town council, but they said they were going to do it anyway. And there were only 78 members of the gay student group. And thousands of people showed up from all over the South. And it was, if you want to feel hope, if you want to feel, you know, the power of change and of youth, go to the first ever pride march in Starkville, Mississippi, you know, <laughs> and I, I, I wanted to, you know, you, you, you end up caring about these characters and I wanted to give them that same moment.
0: I love that. That's a true story. I didn't realize when I read this story, that that was, yeah.
1: Yeah. Was I think because of my journalism background, it's funny to me how many of the stories, you know, start with some, and like I said, as a, you know, I've, I've often described being a writer as being a magpie. Mm. You, you pick up these little stories that are like little candy wrappers and bits of garbage and twigs, and you just bring them back to your nest. You don't know what they'll be for, but you know, um, you're You're on set of a movie, and some actor steals your prescription drugs. That is the greatest thing that could have happened to you as a writer. you know you're visiting Starkville, Mississippi, and during the the worst storm of the year, and then you find out th- that there's a pride the first ever pride march. you know wh- what a gift as a writer Just write that stuff down, take the notes so that you have the have it described on paper somewhere and then you can slowly start to build a fictional world around
0: it. I hadn't been aware of that Kafka quote but you had brought it up there's always hope but not for us and yeah, uh, yeah I love I'd I love that I hadn't I hadn't heard that before but that was great. Well
1: and I I actually take great great I think first of all, I think Kafka' is hilarious. It, yeah <laughs> it's it's the funniest line, but if you unpack that for a moment, there's always hope, but not for us. It, you know it it ends with that great sort of kick in the teeth, but yet we keep going, we keep trying. we know there's not hope for us. We know we're mortal, we know where it's headed, and yet we keep striving and doing and you know and hoping for improvement and and uh, you know, as I said, I was telling a friend, you know, that it just cracks me up to think, you know, Kafka, that, in, that, that eternal optimist. You know? <laughs> um, but I, right. I, I, I think, you know, you asked earlier about humor. And to me, that is, that's the perfect line to, to sort of, you know, start the way you work humor in, you know, that, that is an innately funny line, it's structured like a joke. And now you just go deeper. Where's the hope come from? You know, what about us? (laughs) You know, Um, I I love that.
0: So we find you, the book is out later this month, and um, I assume you're going to do a ton of online events and and you've got a great website. So we can find you on your website, jesswalter.com, I think. It's just your name. Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah. And I don't have as many events this time. Um, I'm doing a few, but I'm teaching at Sewanee. Uh, As you know, about every four or five years, I like to to, uh, restate my vows by going somewhere and teaching. So Mm -hmm. in the middle of july i'll be um, and it, and it's great i do it rarely enough that i feel like i have these small cohorts of students um who i meet at great writing festivals like you who uh, i connect with you know down the road and but yeah i'm, I'm excited to go that. restate my my teaching vows
0: i love that well they're lucky them lucky them That's well, lucky me just walter I love every hour I spend with you. I could have done this for another <laughs> five hours, but I'll just I'll just wait for your next book, which I hear is set in the Virgin Islands. And I'd I'd like to go there, so we'll just do that.
1: Possibly, <laughs> awesome. well, yeah. The Virgin Islands, I've got a I have another book set in um I, I, I kind of like to write, you know, in two things and I have one takeover. So we'll see. But uh, but uh, if the IRS is listening, yes, that's why I keep going to the Virgin Islands. <laughs> so Perfect. please do not audit me. <laughs>
0: Well, I can't wait for that one. Can't wait for anything that comes.
1: Thanks, Marie. It's so great to talk to you. I love great questions and um, love unpacking all this writing stuff. It's, uh, it's a real thrill.
0: Me too. That was Jess Walter. The book is The Angel of Rome. It is out and available on June 28th, published by Harper. Coming up in future episodes, you will hear Alexis Shakin talking about her new novel Elsewhere, as well as Eric Nguyen and The Things We Lost to the Water. In addition to our Patreon page, you can also visit our websites. Barbara's is BarbaraDemarcoBarrett.com. Mine is mariestone.com, two R's in Marie. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and Stitcher. As always, our fantastic music and sound design was provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mykajabi.com. That's M Y. K A J A B I dot com. That's all the time we've got for today. Tune in next week and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day.